Good morning. My name is Tammy Luz. This morning, our scripture reading is from 1 John. Please follow along in your Bibles or use the screens. I'll be reading 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17 from the New American Standard Bible. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. The word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Peter. I am one of the pastors here. We are in our Advent series called True Love in the book of 1 John. And today, the sermon title is a little bit interesting, Christ and Antichrist. Do you have any feelings or memories uh, invoked as you see this title? I don't know if it was on purpose or if it was by accident, but I was taught in the church that I grew up that there's this great war between God and Satan. And uh, it was just kind of like that, it's sort of without explanation. God and Satan are at war, and God rules from heaven, but Satan rules on earth. So here's God from above, and here's Satan squarely established on earth. And again, this part, I'm not sure if it was accidental or on purpose, but I was taught to mistrust the world. I was taught that culture is dangerous and the people in the culture are suspect and I am supposed to be separated from, quote-unquote, those people. Uh, I'm supposed to judge the world and unless I did that, I would be opposed to my own faith in God. So it was God or the world. It was God or or culture, God or those people. And I struggled for years, years and years, how to carry on with my life and love and the business of the world. How can we be in the world and yet not be of the world? This kind of dichotomized way of thinking about my one life didn't make sense. It was just me. And how do I know that I am of God and not of the world? How do I know that I am on the good side, the winning side, the better side, the best side, and not with those people? Uh, I'm not sure, again, how these things came to be, but I had basically four categories as I was being formed in my Christian faith. And these categories were sexuality, money, cursing, and church participation. That was it. Now, I was never taught the relationship between any of these things, like why does sexuality and money have anything to do with each other? Why do I have to be moral in these areas? There was no unifying theory that tied these four categories together. I had to be uh, sexually upright. I had to give money to the church. I had to not have a potty mouth. And I had to attend church. 
And if I did these four categories well, I was of God, I was going to heaven, and I get to judge rather than to be judged. Nobody sat me down and said, these are the four things you have to do well. It's just what I remember as I look back. Everything that sort of was uh, my Christian faith is made manifest in these four categories. Nobody gave me uh, a helpful central truth, a unifying principle, what I would call today a clear thought about why Christian faith is the way it is and why the Bible speaks this way. So I want to start out uh, not the way I grew up, but I want to give you a unifying principle that ties uh, hopefully the whole picture of Christianity together for us today, okay? Here's the clear thought I want us to walk away with after today's sermon. I'm going to go through this a little bit uh, slowly here, give you a chance to read it, and then I'm going to break it down for us. Okay, first sentence, all of life's regulations and insights exist ultimately to serve the purpose of human flourishing, which is God's will. There's nothing in this world that exists except for the sole purpose of human flourishing. That is God's will. And so when Jesus, for example, was asked, what's the greatest commandment? What's life about? What's the one theory, one principle that rules all the other theories and principles? And what did Jesus say? It's to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he said the second is like it. Not meaning he is an additional one that's similar to it, but it's the way the first one is fulfilled. He said, love your neighbor as yourself. And so if you can love God by loving your neighbors, that's it. That's the whole law. Everything else after that is how to do that one thing. And that one thing is human flourishing. This is God's ultimate will for everything. That's about as simple as Christianity gets. Church attendance, why does church attendance exist? Human flourishing. Human beings don't exist for the church. The church exists for human beings. It exists for you. We are here for you. We want you to flourish I'm not talking about you feeling happy or feeling morally superior or you get to check the box off, you get to connect with your friends. All of that is great if they add towards this one goal of you flourishing. Like really flourishing, not just being happy for a day. But from a thousand years later, we look back and we see that you were helped push forward in your life, in your formation as a result of coming to church today, then coming to church today was a good thing. Because that's the purpose of church today. Money. Why give money? It's not because they need money. It's because giving money is ultimately good for you. It's about human flourishing. Sexuality. It's about human flourishing. 
Life, the second sentence continues, is always the final test of goodness, truthfulness, and value. Life, life to the full, the propagation of life, the flourishing of life is the final test. How do you know something is good? Well, does it cause life to flourish? Does it propagate life? Does it strengthen life? Then it's good. How do you know something is truthful versus it being a lie? Well, did it contribute to human flourishing? How do you know something adds value? is valuable, is worth it. Well, because it causes life to flourish. Einstein said life is about energy. Everything can be summed up as energy. Is that true? Yeah, I think so. If you define energy as the one goal towards human flourishing, which we call love. Love is when you decide to spend your energy towards the good of human life. That's love. Whether it's in your brain, whether it's you acting things out, whether it's you speaking words, whatever gesture or thought or word, if it causes the uh, life around you to flourish, then that's love. People were not made for religion. Religion was made for people. Whenever religion stops seeing people as the final end of everything, whenever religion sees people as a means to something, that religion is false. It's destructive. It needs to die. And I'm not just talking about cults or other religions. I'm talking about Christianity. If there's a church out there that's using people instead of seeing people, that church needs to go or it needs to be changed from the ground up. Because this is why churches exist. People were made not for religion, but religion was made for people. While false religion, which John calls the world, sees through people, true love, true religion sees through everything onto people. People ought never be used. People are to be seen and served and loved and given energy towards. That's the final test. This is the only thing that matters. And out of this one guiding principle flows all morality, flows all the regulations and insights and wisdom about life. We're going to really dive into this idea of love next week. But I want you to understand this principle today. I was thinking about uh, uh, the movie My Big Fat Greek Wedding. How many of you saw that? Yeah? Remember that one scene where the dad says, give me a word, any word. I will show you how it's really a Greek word. (laughs) And I feel like that. Give me a rule, any rule, any principle, any truth. And I will show you how it's about love. Anything. Whatever you're thinking, it's all somehow serving the purpose of love, which is energy towards human flourishing. Three points today. One, you need to hate. Two, you need to love. And three, you need love. Okay, to hate, to love, and love. 
Okay, I'm not going to read everything for us, uh, but I want you to notice the highlighted words. Um, and uh, what Tammy read for us isn't everything we're going to cover today. I didn't want to uh, read all of it. But notice the highlighted words. I'm going to read these words. True, darkness. True, light. Light, hates, darkness, loves, light, hates, darkness, darkness, blinded. This guy is like a one-note song. This John character. Verse 15. World, world, world. Love, world, lust, lust. Boastful pride, world, world, lust. Will of God, antichrist, antichrist. And then verse 20. Truth, truth, liar, lie, antichrist, life. And then finally, verse 26 and following, deceive, true, lie, righteous, and righteousness. Now, all these words are kind of the same and kind of different. A bunch of them are similar, and a bunch of the similar ones are the total opposite of the other bunch of similar ones. <laughs> That's basically all of John's writings in all of his books ever. This guy had very small <laughs> vocabulary. <laughs> okay. Let me simplify for us. This is the way John's letter goes. First, he talks a lot about this idea of love. Love your brother. God loves you. You want to love God, then you got to love your brother. It's all about love, love, love. So he starts with love. And then in the middle, he uses words like lie and deceived and darkness and world and pride and antichrist, all of that. I'm going to lump into this one big word we're going to study called lust. And then he ends the uh, section with this idea of righteous or righteousness, which we talked about a few weeks ago as love. When you do the loving thing for a group of people, you are declared the righteous one or the sadikim. And that's why Jesus is the righteous one. He is our righteousness because he did the good thing, the loving thing for us. And so God declares him to be righteous. And then when we believe in him, we're declared righteous, not by our act, but by his righteous act, his loving act. And so love, lust, love. That's the rhythm. That's the vocabulary simplified. So let me begin with lust. What is this word lust? Appears many times in the Bible, in the New Testament. It's the Greek word epithumia. It's a two-part word. The word epi means over, and the word thumia means desire. So we have the word epithumia, which means to over-desire something, to want it too much, to want it, to want it too strongly. Some of the times, especially when Peter describes himself and Paul describes himself, they use this word in a positive way. So Paul, for example, says, I lust or epithumia to be with the Lord, but for your sake, I'm glad I am with you here. So he wants to die and go be with Jesus. He says, but I want to be here also. So that's the word epithumia. Here's my definition for lust. Willingness to obtain the object of lust at the expense of love. Another way to say that is you are willing to objectify and use people instead of loving people. 
So there's this thing you want on the other side of the person in front of you. And you're seeing through the person onto the thing you want. And then the last part is I'm willing to plow through this person, to use this person, to manipulate this person, to disregard this person to get to that thing that I want, that I need, that I must have. That's lust. Right? So one example of this is when you're driving. This is a great reminder if you want to not be as much of a jerk or have a temper when you're driving, is that driver is somebody you know. It's somebody's daughter, somebody's son, somebody's friend, somebody's grandmother, somebody's grandfather, somebody's dad. And you start seeing that driver as a person. They have a story. Maybe they're in a rush. Maybe they had a rough day. Maybe they just spilled coffee on themselves. Who knows what's going on? Who knows why they're driving the way they're driving? Right? And so when you see the person, you don't have to plow through them. You don't have to swerve around them. You don't have to curse at them. You don't have to entertain all this vitriol and anger and sense of violation in, in, in you. Because you're seeing the person. So you can be lusting after your goal of driving a certain way or having a certain experience. That, and then you plow through people to do that. That's lust. That's not love. Love sees people as the end goal. When you see through people, when you don't see people, that's lust. And you can apply this in the area of sexuality. Sexual morality isn't just about the rules. But it really starts and ends with the heart check. What does it look like to not lose sight of somebody's humanity? You can work this through to your dating life to how you think about human trafficking, how you think about what your eyeballs are doing. You can just, whatever area of sexuality, ask the question, how do I not objectify the person in front of me? Am I using this person in any way? Is this person the thing that I'm ultimately trying to serve? And then from there, you can build a whole morality on sex, but it doesn't exist by itself. It's rooted in this idea of love versus lust. So there's a unifying theme to why we practice sexuality the way we practice it. Or money. Money exists for people. How easy is it to use people to get money as opposed to using money to serve people? Build your morality around money, your philosophy, your view of money. Or things, how you own things. What's more important, things or people? I forced my dad to go stand up paddleboarding. And I had this beautiful, beautiful 14 foot board for two weeks. I still have it. Not had, have this beautiful board. And uh, my dad, like me, doesn't swim well. And, uh, you know, he reminded me as he was putting on my wetsuit that he is 70 years old and he ought not be doing this. <laughs> and I said, Dad, if not now, then when? You've got to do this. 
And so um, he's in a wetsuit, and he gets on it stomach first and refuses to get up from this position. It's literally called a stand-up paddleboard, and he's using it like a yoga mat. He refuses to get up, but there were a couple of sharp things on him. I don't know what, I don't know to this day what they were, but he scratched up the surf, my beautiful paddleboard, two weeks old. And then where I launched, there's this like chain link fence that's hovering over the water. And he went under it and he scraped. And I heard the sound. And then I looked and it was all like deep scratched into the, into the bamboo wood. And then when he was finally getting off, he, he treated it like a kayak and he just rammed it over the rocks, pebbles on the beach. And then he was trying to not die, so he took my $400 full carbon paddle and just started scraping at the rocks on the bottom. And folks, I'm not exaggerating. Susie has been so upset about this. She's such a small person. You know? But me, on the other hand, I said, object or person, who's more important? <laughs> it's not about things, it's about people, right? Power, your desire for security, your longing for beauty or sufficiency or glory, all of these things can be framed within the context of love versus lust. Must you have security at the expense of other people? Must you be beautiful by making other people uglier? The goal of life always is people. Therefore, life is about love. Think about everything. How common is lust in all scenarios? How religion is ruined by lust? How politics is ruined by lust? How relationships are ruined by lust? How institutions and governments and systems are ruined by lust? At every turn, Lust shows up because lust is darkness. Lust is lies. Lust is hate. Lust is the spirit of the Antichrist. Jesus came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Therefore, the Antichrist shows up and says, nope, actually, I have not come to give but to gain. I have not come to serve but to use. I have not come to see but to abuse. That's the Antichrist, and that's verses 16 to 17. For all that is in the world, what's in the world? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also it's lust, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. The world out there aren't people. It's the presence the energy we call lust, combating the energy we call love. There really is darkness out there. But it's not this mysterious thing per se. But it really is just the collective experience of our daily exertion of energy in the wrong direction. That's what the world is. That's what darkness is. 
And the call is to counter that with love. So we hate lust, but we love people. Um, Notice these words between hate and love that John uses, verses 9 to 15 here. Life is all about love and hate. It's just love and hate, either love or hate. I want you to notice verse 11, though. Look at the highlight here. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. And what John is saying here is that when you hate somebody, it's not just a thing you possess, but it becomes a guiding principle for you. Notice this person that John's talking about in verse 11 is not just stationary, but it's moving. The one who hates his brother is in the darkness and what? Walks in the darkness. And does not know where he is going. We are all going. We are all walking. We are all in motion on a journey. And we need light for the journey. And John is saying, do you want your path to be dark? Or do you want your path to be lit? If you want to know who you are. And where you're headed. And why. You need light. And that light, that guiding principle is love. Love is your true mission. Love is your purpose. That's why you exist. I don't know why this happened to me this week, but I hung out with four accountants this week. Has that ever happened to you? That must be from the Lord. And when I was hanging out with these four accountants... Every single one of them separately talk negatively about how they feel about their life's work. Is that true? Is that just an exceptional week? Do we have accountants in this room? Do you love your job? Yes. (laughs) Your job isn't accounting. Somehow you have to find love as your true mission, that you are serving and loving people through your accounting. Whatever your job is, your mission is love. You have to ask the question, how do I love? How do I see people? You don't see numbers. You see people. Love is the purpose of Christianity. It's the guiding, forming principle of Christianity. This is the test that Christianity has to pass, that the world may know that we are his disciples, Jesus said. If we don't love, we are not his disciples because Jesus taught love. Jesus is love. He acted out, demonstrated love on the cross. And I want to say this this way because I don't know how this happened, but there are so many Christians in our world and I think in our country that feel like Christianity and culture are opposed to each other. We have somehow either accidentally or purposefully been taught that culture is the enemy. We have been taught to be suspicious of the culture. 
We have been taught to feel alienated from the culture. We have been taught that we are other than culture. Somehow we have to preserve ourselves from the culture, from the world. I don't know who taught us to hate the culture, but it's not the Bible. Because the culture is not the world. That's not the enemy. If you think so, you've missed the memo called the Bible. Your job is not to feel threatened or be suspicious of the culture, but it's to figure out how to love the people that form culture. You know what culture is? Culture is the collective experience of a group of people's behaviors and assumptions. You take people out, there's no culture. When you see art, that's not culture. Art is expressing a human being's thoughts and feelings and views about something. And that person is what embodies culture. So you take all the people out of this church, there's no church culture. You are church culture. And so God says, go reach the culture. Figure out how to engage the culture. Don't be afraid of the culture. Immerse yourself in the culture. And you, your job, your responsibility, you own this. You figure out how to be in the culture. That's the people. And love the people. Love the culture. Redeem the culture. Who told you you have to be suspicious of them and be insecure about it and shield yourself from culture? A church that's not immersed in the culture is ultimately ineffective. It's just an echo chamber. It's not actually making helpful noise. What's your job? What's your mission? It's not accounting. It's to love people. That's how you walk in the light. That's how you know where you're going, that the work that you're doing is a means to people. The hours you spend every day is a means to people. Paul says we battle not against flesh and blood, we don't battle people. Are you kidding me? We're battling for the people against powers and principalities that reveals itself as lust and pride. The world that we are to hate is the spirit of lust, the spirit of hate, a way of viewing through people, using people, hating people, categorizing people, judging people. That's what we are to hate. We are called to love. We have to, as a church, forsake the us versus them view all together. There is no them and there is no us. That's not the battle. Every bullet we fire against people, that's friendly fire. You're shooting at somebody God died for. God made a way for every single person. And our job is to not be threatened by the darkness, but to be light and salt. I interviewed an atheist. She's a classmate of mine. 
And uh, she's been an atheist her whole life. And uh, she was meeting with me in my office uh, a week and a half ago. And uh, after our meeting, I asked her if I can ask her questions about her atheism. And she explained to me, told me the whole story. And I said, boil it down for me. Tell me the one reason why you don't even consider Christian faith. And she said, because the Christianity I know is about hate. That was her one summary of the Christian church. That people in the church know how to hate really well. And if I just sort of walk into some Christian thing, I fear their hate. I fear their judgment. I fear they see me as some some weird, crazy person. And it's really hard to be an atheist, even though Seattle is mostly unchurched statistically. She says, everybody I talk with, they seem to have some connection to religion, to Christianity. I went to see a stand-up comedian last night with, with a church friend of mine, and one of his bits went like this. Christianity, we get it. You guys won. You won. Every religion concedes to you. You win the game of life. He says, you know how I can prove that? What year is it? Somebody yelled out, 2016. And he said, is that the number of years that human beings have been alive? And people thought about it for a second and said, well, no, there were people before that. So why don't we start counting before that? Well, it's because Christianity said that's when Jesus died. And everything is before his death and after his death. And every other religion was like, okay, we'll just go with that. (laughs) You know why? Because Christianity won. What did we win? The right to hate, the right to seat in judgment, the right to sit in power. No. The gospel always moves away from power, moves towards love. Love often looks like weakness because you're on your hands and knees. Love looks like hands spread out, nailed to a cross. Love looks like washing feet. Love looks like patience, absorbency. Is Christianity, your Christianity, your identity, your mission, your reason for living every day defined by love rather than hate? John says the Antichrist is not out there, but it's in here. Many Antichrists, he says, have come from where? From us. They went out from us to show that they were never really of us in the first place, he says. The Antichrist didn't come from the outside. It's here. Among us in this room are Antichrists. What is an Antichrist? Somebody who's lusting instead of loving. Somebody exercising power without love. Doesn't understand life's mission. Who's walking in darkness. Because the one who walks in darkness hates his brother. Clarify for yourself the difference between people and culture. Clarify the difference between the world and people. We don't hate the world. We hate worldliness, which is lust. 
which is anti-people. Let me close with this idea that we need love. We can't give what we don't have. We don't have love. We are vessels made for love, but we don't have love. We're like the moon reflecting light, but we ourselves do not have the light. And so John in verse 20 and following has these words, anointing, abide, abides, anointing, abides, anointing, abide, abide. Lots of occurrences of anointing and abide. What do these words mean? Here's my definition. The word anoint is kind of a one-time thing. You're anointed for a purpose. And then he balances it out with this word abiding, which means to dwell or to live or to stay. So it's an anointing that stays. Okay? And my word for that would be the New Testament word that's used often, which is filling, to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Paul says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And to be filled means to be poured out and then you get filled again. So it's this anointing that's happening constantly to a state that you're, it's abiding in you. How does that happen? Well, it happens uh, regularly. It happens all the time. You need to be filled. And the idea is that we are empty vessels, and so we need to be filled because we can't be vacuous. So unless we're filled with X, we're going to be filled with Y. It's either going to be filled with love or filled with hate. Filled with uh, uh, energy for the world, or energy against the world. Holy Spirit, the word Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead is mostly referred to in the Old Testament as ruach. That's the word you got to say from your throat, ruach. And it means wind. It's not a spiritual word. It just literally just means wind. That's what the Holy Spirit is mostly referred to as in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, the word is pneuma. You know what this word might mean because we get the word pneumonia, right? Pneumatics, it's the word for breath or air. So it's the same thing, wind or breath or air. I'm going to do a little experiment with us as we close. Uh, I want to uh, ask you to sit up. I'm going to do a little physical exercise to help you remember this idea of being filled, anointed. Okay? Take a deep breath in. And take a deep breath out and then hold it after you breathe it all out. Three, two, one. Okay, let it go. Now, take a deep breath in and breathe it all out and hold. Four, five. Six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Okay, breathe. It's hard to hold your breath, isn't it? Isn't it hard? You can't be empty. You need to be filled with the love of God in Christ. You need somehow to be filled with the knowledge that you are deeply loved that God's disposition towards you is love. And that love somehow pours out of you. You breathe in God's love. Your body absorbs the oxygen that you need, and then it translates that oxygen into energy out. 
thoughts, words, action for the good of humanity. That's how we are to live. That's how we are anointed and abide in the love of God, this continual breathing in of the spirit of God. And then we absorb that spirit and that gets translated into action, into energy, love for people. Romans 5.5, the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Galatians 4.6, because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. Translators kept the word sons rather than change it to sons and daughters because he's tapping into the cultural uh, rule of primogeniture where it's the sons who receive the inheritance, the rights. And he's saying we are the legitimate heirs of God's love, of God's mission. And he gives us, fills us, anoints us with the spirit of his son into our hearts. He pours himself into us and we cry out, Abba, Father, that's daddy. That's who we are, loved by our father. And we are to not be insecure, not be afraid, not be threatened by the world or the culture or the people of it, but to see them and love them, not use them, not disregard them. That's what it means to be the church. I want to ask you to close your eyes. And I want to ask you to do prayer um, the way I think is so helpful for me. But I want you to pray right now by breathing in and out. And I want you to, as you breathe in, say, let this be the spirit of God. Let this be the love of God that I'm breathing in. And then as you breathe out the carbon dioxide, breathe out darkness and lies and distortions and insecurities and greed and addictions and all these illegitimate ways of meeting legitimate needs in your life. Just breathe that out. Breathe out the lust, the using of people. And breathe in love. Breathe out lust. Breathe in love. Breathe in God's will. Breathe in Christ's work. God, we pray that the anointing and abiding love of God will fill us right now. Holy Spirit, fill this room. Fill each person from the crown of their heads to the soles of their feet with your love. Help us to breathe in physically and spiritually your love. Help us to know we are vessels of love. This week, one morning when it was 28 degrees and raining with white caps, I went out paddleboarding in the dark and I watched the sunrise over Mount Rainier. Clouds disappeared and the sun came out. And in that moment, I was certain that God loves me. And I was certain that my job is to love, not to hate. God has called each of us to love, to be vessels of love. God, I pray that we may be Christ's out there, not antichrists. That when they experience us, 
they would experience love, love that pursues the other's flourishing in truth, in courage, in patience, and kindness. Help us to love as you have loved us. In Jesus' name, amen.